0: The talk tonight is about the Four Brahma Viharas, also known as the Four Divine Abodes. And what is meant by the word Divine Abode is that we all have the capacity to find a spiritual home. Divine Abode means spiritual home. so this these divine abodes are the place where we can feel at home spiritually and the four divine abodes are metta or the feeling of unconditional love for all beings compassion or karuna the ability to share or feel the sorrow and suffering of other beings The third is mudita, sympathetic joy, the ability to feel or share in another person's joy or blessing. And the fourth is equanimity, which you've heard a lot about. It's the non-reactive mind, a balance of mind, evenness of mind. They are said also to be a divine home because they involve an ideal conduct towards all beings, all living beings. They involve wisdom and the world of action. They're about our relationship to other people and other beings. They are very deep powerful, spiritual feelings. They're known as boundless states. Boundless because they help us cut through any kind of feeling of being separated or alienated. And we live in a world of form, generally. You'll notice this as you leave here in the next weeks more than ever we live in the world of form that helps us function in the world names concepts like man or woman like black white yellow red america china new zealand russia lots of form insect cow bird fish buddhist catholic protestant jewish it's endless and these boundaries or forms can cause us a lot of suffering in the world if we stay imprisoned by these forms if we can't see through them in terms of that they do help us function and the buddha taught that we can develop these four very deep spiritual emotions because they develop integrity and wholeness they help us link the world of wisdom with the world of action when we come on a retreat it's really a sign of love for ourselves. Some people might look at it from the outside and think of it as selfish. But after being here for three months, (laughs) you probably can see that it's not exactly a vacation. And so many human beings are really genuinely searching for love truly searching for love. Loving-kindness, or metta, is this very deep, unconditional love. Often the image that's used for this as a metaphor is the feeling a mother has for her newborn child. Instead of thinking of it as self-centered desire, any kind of feeling for being possessed or possessing another person or another being it's really much deeper than that it's not based on selfish affection it's without conditions it's not the kind of love that we make a bargain that I'll love you if you love me It's a state of being. The opposite of metta or loving kindness is hatred, because it's not possible to feel hatred and this kind of metta at the same time. And traditionally, it's said to come about The proximate cause is being able to see the agreeable sides of people. So it's something to keep in mind if you're having difficulty with someone, to see if you can think of something (laughs) positive about this person. Why would one do loving-kindness practice? Why bother? There's said to be a number of purposes for doing it. The first is to develop the ability to actually feel this feeling and send it to oneself and all beings. It's developing a very soft, open heart. It's truly wishing oneself well and genuinely wishing others well, which is quite rare in this world. The second is, if you feel overwhelmed at any time by anger, this, this feeling of loving-kindness doing this practice can help melt the anger. And this doesn't mean to avoid the feeling of anger itself. It's not meant to be something that one does to constantly repress the feeling of anger. Anger. It means that if you feel overwhelmed by anger, that often this can be helpful in terms of just not drowning in it. And recently I've been thinking that sometimes it's recommended that if you're having difficulty with someone, that you send loving-kindness to this person. But recently I've been seeing that actually the, the feeling of anger itself is so unpleasant and so painful that usually the person who's feeling the anger needs to feel metta for oneself. Now that That's the time when we really need to send metta to ourselves because we're feeling so in so much pain. So just if you're feeling anger with anyone, just look and see if you're drowning in it, send metta to yourself. It's usually the first step before being able to feel it toward the other person. It helps us swim up for air. It seems even more rare in this world for people to take responsibility for feeling anger. I think it's why we have so much war on this planet. It's so much easier to project it onto other people, and mm-hmm. into other countries, or other, in any way, and other beings, rather than feel it. Because it's so hard to feel it. It's very unpleasant. And if we can learn to allow it, to feel it fully, and not identify with it, it comes and goes. The third purpose of doing loving-kindness practice is that it's a form of protection, and a very powerful protection. It was first taught by the Buddha to the monks and nuns that were practicing in the jungle. At first, when they went out into the jungle, they were afraid of wild animals and evil spirits. And actually, it can be used as a protection in, forms of, in the form of our own fear. It's a protection against harm and fear. An aspect of this, in terms of protection, is that this quality of an open heart brings about the condition of non-harming. And in that development, what happens is that the beings around us have less and less fear. And there's a feeling that I have when we're at IMS, for example, where there's an intention on our parts not to cause harm, you can just feel it in the animals and the beings around here. You can see it. I drove up the other day after a long hard day in the outside world and I pulled up into the driveway and I saw someone feeding a bird. And it was such a different quality than what I had just left. Just this feeling here you know sometimes i feel like the ants here just everything here can feel that intention of non-harm it's incredibly powerful and 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 it's kind of like a womb here Uh, again it's quite different in the outer world and there's so much trust that is developed when we understand that that is the intention around us one aspect of loving-kindness practice is that it can be done as a concentration practice people do do a month of loving-kindness practice or two weeks or three weeks months and months of it and in in this way it's a little different in that one is actually trying to develop concentration as well as the feeling and if one does this practice it's said to have eleven benefits and I just wanted to mention them because they're interesting The first is that one sleeps easily. And the second is that one wakes easily. One has pleasant dreams. One is loved and respected by all beings. Devas and Brahmas will love you. Devas and Brahmas will protect you. Poison and fire and weapons won't harm you one's mind becomes serene, one has a clear complexion, (laughs) and one will die unconfused. It's a nice feeling, just in in talking about metta practice. (laughs) It's so wonderful to hear it. And as you've heard already, the practice is begun by, after the traditional extending of forgiveness to oneself and others, one begins with oneself. And the reason for this is because before you can extend this feeling to other beings, it's important to be able to, to send it to oneself. It's, it's said to be impossible to really genuinely be able to wish it for others until one can feel it for oneself I've noticed that for some people it doesn't work that way (laughs) and I just wanted to mention this because if you're one of those people it's quite important to hear this I've noticed that a lot of people actually have a very difficult time extending this feeling to oneself and I have a friend that was trying to do this practice when she heard it and she was trying to send this feeling to herself and trying to send this feeling for herself and every time she'd do it she'd feel more and more self-hatred because she couldn't do it And it was very interesting. If if you're one of these people, um, she would feel like a failure because she couldn't do it. And actually, she was feeling more and more self-hatred as the years went on. And so I started suggesting that she just try to think of something, someone, or some being, that she could feel this feeling toward. without a lot of work, anything. And she came up with a pet that she had. And often, for some people, it can be a dog or a cat or a bird. Because often we don't have a feeling of being rejected by an animal. You know, usually there's a feeling of um, not being abandoned or hurt by an animal that we might have with people. And do whatever works. Whatever it takes, if that's where you need to begin, begin there. And it might be that you begin with a minute, rather than a half hour, or 30 seconds, because you can build on that. And people who try to do it for long periods of time get a feeling of failure if, if it's not easy to connect with this practice. Some people, it's easier than others. If someone's having a little bit of difficulty, I suggest that they start with a benefactor, someone that you have an easy, natural feeling of this feeling for, spontaneous, and then go back to yourself if you're having some difficulty, because it's the feeling that's so important. As one learns to do this, It it naturally will extend to other friends, and someone difficult, someone neutral, and other beings. And that's that's the way it's traditionally taught, to start with oneself, to extend to a benefactor. And it's just this nice, gradual opening, which includes, ultimately, all beings, everywhere, that we share this universe with. It's a very powerful practice. It's quite easy to love ourselves when we're feeling perfectly clear and open. It's just like it's very easy to love a day that's very blue sky and warm and a friendly day. And it's much more difficult to love ourselves when we're angry or lonely or tired or depressed or frightened or feeling defeated or hopeless. And it's interesting that we're usually hardest on ourselves when we're having the hardest time. And one aspect of metta meditation is that we usually whip ourselves when we're having a hard time. And metta can help us throw away the whip. I think this is especially, especially helpful in this culture metta can help us cultivate a warmth and tenderness toward ourselves that helps melt the self-hatred and negativity that us westerners often feel towards ourselves And as I said, one of the end results of this opening is that one can extend it to all beings easily and naturally with the understanding that we share this universe with them. So this includes slugs, and mosquitoes, and birds, and dogs, and cats, and all beings whales and sharks fish maggots flies bees ducks you know on and on and on and this includes unseen beings as well this quality of understanding that we do share the universe with all beings that they're is this interconnectedness um, is expressed by the lakota sioux indians in a in a phrase that they usually end prayers with usually at the end of their prayers there's a saying they say which is all my all my relations or all my relatives and this means all my relations with everything on the earth and in this universe. It's this deep understanding that we're all family. And it's easy to talk about But the understanding and being able to act on this interconnectedness is not always so easy to express. There's a I guess you could call this a poem by Neem Karoli Baba that I think expresses this interconnectedness. He said that, I am like the wind. No one can hold me. I belong to everyone. No one can own me. The whole world is my home. All are my family. I live in every heart. I will never leave you. All are my family. It's such deep understanding in that. To be able to live with this understanding is extraordinary, and to be a human being. And I think that by practicing loving kindness it's the beginning of taking refuge in this heart that understands the interconnectedness of life. That we all take birth on this planet and in the universe and that we all share very deeply the energy. We're all related. There's this communion. energy and all beings who take birth know fear all beings who take birth don't want to die they don't want to feel hurt and yet the actuality is that we all do hurt others we all do feel hurt we all do take birth and die. This is the actuality. And I think it's important, in terms of even understanding, understanding, that understanding another being requires being able to enter the heart of another being, or to understand one's own. And to understand that people don't hurt others unless they're out of harmony with themselves. They don't hurt others unless they're in pain themselves and feeling afraid or alienated, angry. And that we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all do hurt others and get hurt over and over and over again. And it's very easy to judge and condemn other people. There's a saying by the American Indians that not to judge another unless you've walked a mile in their moccasins. Again, that's a hard practice to do. Not to judge unless you've walked a mile in their moccasins. I think I'd like to speak a bit tonight about forgiveness as a tool for opening. It's something that isn't talked about too much, but it's a very important part of the loving-kindness practice. It's that sentence, if I have harmed anyone or any being, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask their forgiveness. If anyone or any being has harmed me knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive them freely. It's important to be okay with not being able to forgive. Forgiveness is a process. And often we want to put the cart before the horse. We want to be able to be totally forgiving and finished with whatever harm was caused. And depending on the hurt, depending on the harm, and depending on how much we were close to the other being or person, if we try to forgive before we feel the difficult feelings, such as anger, or hurt, or rejection, or (coughs) abandonment. We want to be over with. We want to just be done with the difficult feelings. We want to be totally forgiving. And that model makes it very difficult to heal. It makes it very difficult to actually be able to forgive. So, say we're having a difficult feeling over some past hurt. If we can see that and accept that feeling, if we allow that feeling fully and not identify with it, <laughs> there's those two components allowing it fully and not identifying with it. if one can't forgive in that moment it's just not forgiving there's nobody behind the process it's just not forgiving and this understanding makes space for the difficult feelings in that process often we get in touch eventually with the love that we actually felt for that person or we wouldn't have felt hurt in the first place often. And there's a healing. In the last four years, I've been going through a process of forgiveness myself. Um, I was sexually abused a lot as a very young child and had memories of that recently. And I've been watching this process of forgiveness for the last couple of years. And I've had to feel very difficult feelings quite deeply watching them arise and pass. And several years ago when I first had my first moment of forgiveness It was such an epiphany, it was one of the most powerful moments of my life because I didn't think I would ever feel that way after (laughs) hours and hours and hours of very painful feelings. And it was just like someone had pulled this incredibly deep thorn out of my heart, and I thought it was over. I thought, oh, well, I'm done with that one. (laughs) I forgive him. Great. And it hasn't been like that. It feels like what happened was that that was sort of a layer. And then there was another layer of hurt and anger and terror and rage. And then more forgiveness. And I had this model that I would just get to this place where I'd be totally forgiving. And it hasn't been like that. It's been this de-layering, and delayering and delayering. And it's what's been very powerful is that there's been this m- progression to this very deep place of forgiveness. But I don't have this model anymore that difficult feelings aren't going to come up around it. Maybe. But I'm beginning to see it as a process and a very, very powerful process when I'm becoming deeply grateful for as a teaching. And one thing that it's taught me is that the more we open to actually love other human beings and this means being hu- they're human and that they hurt and they make mistakes. The more we need to be willing to feel the pain And that takes incredible love. It takes incredible metta. And in the forgiveness process, I find that it's much quicker and much easier if the other person, in a difficult situation, acknowledges the pain they caused, or the action. But that's not always possible. It does bring about a quicker healing, usually. I think you'll find that if someone apologizes to you or says they're sorry or understands the pain and can feel it and share it, it's easier to forgive. But sometimes it's a longer process for very deep pain and hurt. And ultimately there's no forgiver and no forgiveness. No, there's no forgiver and no forgiven. There's just forgiveness. It's just a process. In relationship to this In terms of um, attacking others (laughs) with our anger, which I'd like to speak about again if I have time, but I just wanted to mention something that I heard the Dalai Lama once say. I went to a conference in Buddhism and psychology where he was uh, speaking a while ago, and someone asked him if he could speak about any benefits that he knew of in regard to someone expressing their anger just in regard to someone expressing the energy of anger and he thought very deeply he was up there in a huge, huge auditorium and he just sat there for five minutes thinking and thinking <laughs> and thinking. It was so interesting. I could just see him kind of going through all the texts. <laughs> yeah, and he was in no hurry. He just sat there and sat there five minutes, and then he just said, No. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> There's something that I find that he also it just embodies and expresses is that we need our enemies. He said that we can learn real tolerance and patience from our enemies. We learn inner strength. And that one's enemy is one's best teacher. And again, in terms of what happened in Tibet and all the torture and rape and what still goes on in that country and the compassion and metta that he embodies and a lot of the people embody are really extraordinary. That one's enemy is one's teacher. when we can feel this feeling of openness of heart to ourselves and other beings this is a condition for being able to feel compassion this openness of heart enables us to open to the suffering in ourselves and other beings einstein said that Human beings are a part of a whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. They experience themselves, their thoughts, and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of their consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires, and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. Our boundaries are a prison for ourselves so compassion is being able to open to the suffering within ourselves within other beings and within all beings there's what is called the near enemies of the brahma vihars the near enemy it means that this can masquerade or seem like compassion but it isn't so the near enemy of compassion is pity the near enemy of metta is self-centered desire it might look like metta it might look like compassion but it really isn't and pity is when we look at another being or person suffering as being separate from our own it's not really sharing in it. It's, it's distancing ourselves from it. It's a kind of aversion to the unpleasantness of the suffering. It's feeling sorry for someone. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty, because it's impossible to feel cruelty and be compassionate at the same time. And the cause of compassion is said to be seeing the helplessness in others overwhelmed by suffering. And it's said that compassion succeeds when it makes cruelty subside and then it fails when it produces sorrow. It's important for compassion to be balanced by wisdom and detachment because if our heart is overly engaged usually that moves toward an imbalance of wanting to get rid of the pain it moves so easily into aversion and the heart can get so overwhelmed so engaged that it can easily get broken and it produces sorrow rather than being of any service There's so much unimaginable suffering in this world. If you just take hunger or violence, wars, pollution, disease, I mean, it's um, unimaginable the extent of it. And compassion doesn't mean avoiding the pain. It means allowing it, accepting it, and understanding it. There was a time when I was on staff here at IMS and I went for a ride to Amherst and found a huge snapping turtle that had just been hit by a car on the road. And so I stopped the car and came up to the turtle and the whole shell had been cracked. And it was obviously <laughs> not much I could do. And I I kind of got something to pull it over with, you know, underneath it and brought it underneath a pine tree. And my instinct was to try to put it out of its misery. I just wanted to kill it. And I struggled very deeply at that moment because there was a monk from Burma here, Tungpulusayada, Sayadaw, who had just told me whatever I did not to kill anything. And so, I just sat there in agony and just decided to trust this teacher. And I just sat with it until it died. And I just sent metta. But I never left the turtle, really. The turtle stayed with me for many years. And then one time when I was sitting, I don't know, it was probably three years later, I had a sense of um, what had been a lot of the agony, and it was around when my mother was very sick and dying. I had the same feeling of just not wanting that much pain to actually exist in this world. It was just too unbearable as a child to try to open to that and I think that for all of us it's a quite a long road to understand the difference between aversion to pain and compassion again it's easy to talk about but in the moment of actually opening to it it's not so easy to watch somebody or some being have to go through whatever they have to go through including ourselves in this life of birth and growth and death there's such a difference between being able to open to the pain and wanting to get rid of it and again the the crucial aspect of this is understanding the balance of compassion with wisdom the balance of openness and detachment and ultimately there is no one suffering when there's sadness there's just sadness when there's bleeding there's just bleeding but there's this incredible care is the incredible understanding that we share very deeply with all beings suffering when we have this openness of heart balanced with the detachment then we don't turn to mush and it doesn't turn to pity it remains care One act of care in one moment is so powerful. This is a quote from Mother Teresa. She says that, we feel that what we are doing is just a drop in the ocean. But if that drop were not in the ocean, I think the ocean would be less because of that missing drop. I don't agree with a big way of doing things. To us, what matters is an individual. To get to love a person, we must come in close contact with him or her. If we wait until we get the numbers, then we will be lost in the numbers. And we will never be able to show that love and respect for the person. I believe in person to person. that one genuine act of care in one moment. Again, we don't have to save the world. We, we get this enormity of burden, sometimes of pressure, of what we can do. what, How do we respond to the enormity of suffering? And it's really just in that moment of genuine care. And I think, again, to be careful to have this idea that we are always going to be compassionate. It's okay to be closed. It's okay to shut down. There's such an enormity of suffering, sometimes we need to rest and pull back and gain the strength to open again. And I think that humor, humor is very important. I think that the Buddha left it off all the lists because it's just something that he understood, (laughs) we all assumed was part of the practice. Mahatma Gandhi once said that if I didn't have a sense of humor, I would have committed suicide a long time ago. we don't have to take ourselves so seriously it's like we don't have to know everything we don't have to figure it all out we don't have to save the world we don't have to take ourselves so seriously and there's a wonderful little quote that um, I think is a balance to sometimes the heaviness of the suffering in this world. It's about relaxation and trust. Watermelons, even they can manage themselves. (laughs) Watermelons, even they can manage themselves. Even watermelons. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> if watermelons can do it, why not us? <laughs> so there's this spiritual home of an open heart there's a spiritual home of being able to share in the suffering of others. And then there's mudita, sympathetic joy, which is feeling joy in another's happiness or success. And so there's that balance of compassion and mudita. There's the sharing in the suffering and the sharing in the joy again i love the wholeness of the picture it's not just the suffering that we're learning to share in but we're learning to share also in the joy and the happiness and it's considered to be very very rare in this world to be actually able to feel this feeling more rare than anything is to be able to feel this joy in another person's happiness And it's said that because true affection needs to be present for this to happen, it's said to be easier to sympathize with another person's suffering. The near enemy of mudita is being joyful at something insignificant or petty that happens to another person. And the far enemy is jealousy or envy. And I have a friend that is a photographer and her neighbor upstairs also is a photographer. And one time her neighbor, this photographer, got a job that they had both applied for. And she wrote me how she felt after she found out that her friend got the job and not her. And she said she felt so badly, she was so upset, and she thought, well, what can I do? And So she started going through the list of the Brahma Viharas. And so she started saying, well, maybe I can do loving-kindness meditation. And she felt more and more hatred. (laughs) So then she started thinking, well, maybe I can (laughs) I can do some sort of compassion, and it didn't apply. So then she got to Sympathetic Joy, and she said she felt totally suicidal. (laughs) (laughs) And I just like to share these things, because we get these ideas that we're just going to go out there, and, you know, we're just going to feel this incredible mudita. (laughs) This is a very rare thing, to be able (laughs) to feel this. And if you think about it, it's because we actually don't like to accept that we feel jealous a lot. And jealousy is very painful. And I think it's, it's, we fight it. We just don't like to admit to ourselves that jealousy actually happens, that it actually arises and passes. And so what we do is we judge and condemn ourselves for it being there, and then it's not workable. And it's being able to just go, oh, hi jealousy allow it not identify with it it's not ours and the feeling will just again it'll come and go if we don't identify with it and the more we can accept the appearance of jealousy rather than repress it and try to feel this feeling and feel more and more suicidal (laughs) Actually, when we can feel the feeling of jealousy, let it come and go, the more this will make space for this gladness of heart to appear. It's ironic, it doesn't work the way we would think, but actually this happens. The more we can make space for the jealousy and not identify with it, the more we can feel this feeling of mudita. And this gives us confidence and our potential to feel this feeling to feel our own worthwhileness one can share this unconditional genuine joy in a beautiful way when one is sitting and that is it's called sharing merit. And merit is defined as the accumulation of tendencies resulting from enlightened actions such as what you're doing here, sitting. And according to the law of karma these actions are conducive to your future happiness. And so I think it's very beautiful to understand that you can share this merit of what you're doing here with other beings. You can share it with relatives, with friends, with any beings, human beings, or any beings on the planet, seen or unseen. And this can help us develop this divine home of Mudita. Sympathetic joy is said to give equanimity the mild serenity that softens its appearance. It's called the divine smile on the face of the Buddha. It's called the divine smile on the face of the Buddha. And metta, compassion, and mudita lead to equanimity, which isn't indifference to the joys and sorrows of other beings, but it gives stability and evenness to being able to open to the joys and sorrows of other beings. And equanimity is called the queen or king of these four spiritual homes and they equanimity keeps the other three in balance and again equanimity is not indifference that's its near enemy it can look like equanimity but it's very much a closed separate heart it's not an open heart equanimity is the non-reactive mind it's the mind that is at peace whether there's sounds thoughts bodily sensations anything that's disturbing you it's that peace it's that openness to any moment equally allowing without distinction And I think that, in regard to equanimity, I'd like to ask you to ask yourself what it is that you most deeply want this lifetime. What is it that you really, really want? And often when people think of this, they think of some of these qualities that can be developed most people really really want to be loving you know that's what we really want we really really want to be compassionate we really want to feel joyful when other people are happy and I think that we yearn and long for these feelings we yearn and long for growth and freedom but we have to be willing to pay the price. And the price is, is the suffering. It's the suffering which challenges the supremacy of our ego. I remember a while ago, someone came into me for an interview and said, Well, I guess equanimity doesn't mean that you don't hurt and we so easily forget that freedom from suffering doesn't mean freedom from pain and equanimity means not running away from pain and it means not holding on to pleasure it's being okay with the totality of life It's being okay with our existential predicament as human beings. I think Zorba the Greek called it the whole catastrophe. (laughs) There's a quote that I like a lot that seems to embody equanimity to me. On a very deep level, it's by Nisargadatta, And he said that, Love tells me I'm everything. And wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And I think that's all you really ever need to know, or all you ever need to remember. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. This is that extraordinary balance of connectedness and detachment. And it's really a lifelong koan. You know, often people tend to be more on the edge of connectedness and openness of heart. And there's imbalances that arise because of that. And then other people might be more on the edge of detachment. But there's imbalances that come from that. And this extraordinary paradox (laughs) that we're faced with of being connected and detached and how to live that out and do what we need to do to balance ourselves it's such a task, it's such a lifelong koan and it can be a very joyful koan but I think that there's actually a conflict that we often feel because it's like we become aware of this paradox. It's like, these, are, these seem like opposites at times. So when we have wisdom, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. The danger is indifference. If, if detachment isn't balanced by love, it can often manifest as aversion for the world. Or greed for higher states in meditation practice. Or it can seem like, why bother? It's just all pressure and heat and tingling. You know, there's no one there anyway. Why bother to help anybody? It becomes a feeling of nihilism, cold, impersonal, scientific, dry wisdom that's not balanced by love. and if love isn't balanced by understanding it becomes self-serving for our own needs out of maybe even the need to help the need for people to get better the need to possess or be possessed and so these these can seem like a conflict because they are opposite But it's actually the balance that's so important. I remember a long time ago when I was on staff, I had only done a two-week course before I came on staff, and someone was here doing a a self-retreat. I think he'd been in retreat for about five months. Uh, And I went by him as he was outside watching the sunset. (laughs) He started talking to me. And I'll never forget it because he just looked at me and he said, I just watched that sunset. I've never watched a sunset so fully before. I just watched it, the sun go down. And then he said it just felt so distant and cold and impersonal. So equanimity is this balance of deeply caring, this tender care, and detachment with all that takes birth and dies in this universe. And what's very funny is that the more detached we can be, the more caring we can be. The more caring we can be, the more detached we can be. they're a complementary and as we grow in these we become deeply present with ourselves and all beings in this universe I wanted to end with a quote and I think I'll end with a quote by Galway Canal it's from a book called mortal acts and mortal words. Mortal being that we arise and pass. This is called the still time. I know there is still time, time for the hands to open, for the bones of them to be filled by those failed harvests of want the bread imagined of the days of not having now that the fear has been rummaged down to its husk and the wind blowing the flesh away translates itself into flesh and the flesh streams in its reveries on the wind. I remember those summer nights when I was young and empty, when I lay through the darkness wanting, wanting, knowing I would have nothing of anything I wanted, that total total craving that hollows the heart out, irreversibly So it surprises me now to hear the steps of my life following me, so much of it gone. It returns. Everything that drove me crazy comes back, blessing the misery of each step it took me into the world, as though a prayer had ended and the changed air between the palms goes free to become the glitter on common things that inexplicably shine and all the old voices which once made broken off choked parrot incoherences speak again this time on the palatum cordis all of them saying, there is still time for those who can groan to sing, for those who can sing to heal themselves. Let's sit for a few minutes.